Uh, we are continuing this kind of eight-week series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, you might remember uh, kind of last week, uh, this week we're kind of starting in a new section in chapter 28, but last week uh, we were in a section of uh, kind of prophecies against a bunch of the nations around uh, Israel. And what we saw was uh, that uh, a reminder for God's people uh, that he is a God who kind of rules all of these nations that they fear. And not only that, but he has promised to one day restore his people Israel and to continue to, to keep using them to achieve his purposes in the world. And so at the end of that last section, uh, that group of kind of uh, prophecies against the nations, uh, what we saw there, uh, we didn't look at it, but what you can see when we look at the end of that section, chapter 26, Isaiah pauses to praise God, and then in chapter 27, the end of the section, just before we get to here, he kind of says, but God is still going to judge his sinful, uh, rebellious people, uh, but he will also deliver them. He will be their hope, their refuge. Because of his grace, there is blossoming and fruitfulness and atonement to come for his people Israel. <clears throat> so as we come to chapter 28 today, this kind of background of, of where we've been, and what Isaiah's been talking about, it's, it's, it's important for us. You know, Isaiah has been kind of looking forward uh, about 200 years into the future for the time when God will judge the nation of Babylon after they've kind of uh, demolished uh, Judah and, uh, and taken them off into exile. But God also kind of affirms that he is still going to deal with Israel's problem that they're facing in the present, which is that the nation of Assyria, you might remember, to the north, they're kind of uh, ready to pounce and attack on uh, Israel uh, and on Judah in particular, the southern kingdom, who uh, are kind of weakened because they've lost their king. Uh, you might remember we talked about the split kingdom. Israel has been kind of split into two. It's a really not a great, good time for Israel. There's the northern kingdom of Ephraim, ten tribes up there, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes in the south where Jerusalem uh, is. And so uh, here we come to a key moment for God's people in chapter 28. It's an important moment as they're kind of faced with this crisis. Assyria is, is coming. You know, will they choose to trust in their God and, and everything that he says he can and will do for them? Or will they choose to ignore God and take matters into their own hands? And the whole of chapter 28 kind of hinges on this, questions, on this question. How will God's people respond when they're faced with a crisis? Will they choose to rest in God's wisdom or will they choose foolishness? And it's a passage this morning that's going to kind of push us as God's people here and now to, to kind of ask the question of ourselves. How, how do we respond? How will we respond in moments of crisis? As the chapter kicks off here, chapter 28, Isaiah, he's speaking to these people in the southern kingdom of Judah uh, and he warns them, first of all, of kind of three really foolish ways that they might respond to the, the crisis that they're facing. And the first two of these are, are foolish responses, these fo examples of foolish responses, uh, responses. The first two of them, Isaiah is kind of highlighting some responses from the people in the northern kingdom of Ephraim. They're kind of neighbours to the north of this split kingdom. Uh, he's, he's highlighting some ways that uh, Ephraim have responded to crisis, and he points them out to the people of Judah in the south to kind of say, hey, look at your brothers and sisters in the north in Ephraim. This is what not to do. Uh, 
they don't really do it anymore, I don't think, but uh, for years, uh, the winner of Formula One races uh, always used to get given a, a wreath, and maybe a bunch of other different uh, motorsport and stuff as well too. Uh, they would get given a wreath, the winner on the podium, they wear this special wreath around their neck. It's something that kind of, uh, ha- kind of harks back to uh, you know, the, the Greek uh, history and the history of the Olympics as well. Uh, this picture here, uh, I don't proclaim to be uh, an expert at motorsport, but I just Googled this. This is the last time they did this in 1985. This is a guy named, anybody know who it is? Someone. Alan Prost, yeah, I thought a few people would know that. This is Alan Prost. Uh, uh, this is 1985, coincidentally, the year that I was born. To make a few of you feel really old. Uh, this is the last time they gave a wreath to the winner of uh, a GP. This is the Italian GP in 1985. In the first six verses of this chapter, Isaiah, he highlights the people of Ephraim in the north, they, uh, their response to the crisis they've faced. Their response is that they have turned to alcohol and drunkenness as a way of kind of escaping reality. And the result is they're kind of filled with this false confidence about their own strength. And the thing is, they wear this false confidence like a wreath of victory around their neck. Let's read from verse 1. Isaiah says, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city the pride of those laid low by wine. You know, what's happening here is these people of Ephraim, they're they're boasting in their own strength, and particularly in the strength of their kind of capital city, Samaria. They're boasting in its strength and and setting it up like a a wreath. It kind of sat on top of a bit of a crest of a a mountain. And so they're they're boasting in the strength of their capital city. And the reason they're boasting is because uh, they're so drunk and foolishly filled with confidence that they think they can stand up to the attack that's coming against them. But it's confidence and boasting that is sadly misplaced because Samaria will be destroyed. From verse 2, we see it's going to be wiped out, trampled underfoot as God allows their enemies to kind of sweep through like a storm, a hailstorm, like a flood. In verse 4, Assyria are going to devour them like a ripe fig plucked from the branch. And when all this happens, Isaiah says in verse 5 and 6, it's going to be clear that only God has the strength that his people need. And so instead of boasting in their own strength, their strong and glorious God is the one that they should boast in and turn to in the face of crisis. And so failing to do that, that's a foolish response, the first example of a foolish response in their moment of crisis. I wonder what you do, uh, maybe for the adults, what you do now when there's something you really don't want to hear. Maybe it's a, a, a sports score, a game that you've taped. Joe Wilson knows what I'm talking about, doesn't want anyone to spoil the score for him at the end. Uh, maybe it's a movie, uh, maybe you have someone who has a bad habit of telling the end of the movies that you haven't seen, or maybe it's just some bad news you don't want to hear. Now what do we do? I think a lot of the time we'd like to do this as adults probably, but not quite as acceptable as it is for our kids. Uh, I'm sure many of us who've uh, had uh, kids or nieces or nephews or grandchildren, uh, this is one thing, kids, I don't want to hear what you're saying. Blah, 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 blah. 
This is basically the second example of a foolish response from the people of Ephraim uh, that Isaiah highlights. Not only do they choose to kind of trust in their own strength instead of God's, their leaders, who are also drunk, they arrogantly and pridefully just refuse to listen to God's word to them. See in verse 7 and 8, if you've got your Bible open in front of you there, Isaiah, he describes the priests and the prophets of Ephraim uh, they're spiritual leaders, these priests and prophets. He describes them as staggering around in drunkenness and there's vomit everywhere, he says. It's, it's a disgusting scene. Now, these guys are staggering around, wandering around, drunk, uh, unable to see and hear what God is uh, saying to them because they're, just, they're wasted. But more than just being unable to hear and see God, Isaiah kind of paints this picture of these prideful leaders who, who just refuse. They refuse to even listen uh, to the words of warning from Isaiah. Let's see what he says from verse 9. This is kind of the response of these leaders to the words of Isaiah, these drunken leaders. They say, you know, who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining this message? to children weaned from their milk, to, to those just taken from the breast. For it is, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. You know, here I think we're, we're meant to read this and, and picture these leaders as though they're basically doing this and saying, blah, 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 blah. It's like they're saying to us, oh, you know, how dare you come in here and say we are sinful just because we're indulging ourselves a little bit because we're trying to work out maybe some sensible arrangements with the, the nations around us, instead of doing a, a perfectly you know, silly thing like trusting in God. Are you, are you mad? Who do, you, do you think we're children? As Isaiah continues, he says that the, the result of blocking their ears to what God has to say is that the leaders of Ephraim, they'll, they'll get what they want. They will be deaf to God's wisdom. And all they will hear when God speaks to them is blah, blah, blah. It's another foolish response from God's people in the face of crisis. When we come to the, the third example of a foolish response, Isaiah, he's kind of still talking to the people of, of Judah in the, in the southern kingdom, but now he, he kind of turns his focus specifically to them and, and highlights uh, their own kind of foolishness. From verse 14, see what he says. Isaiah says to the people in Jerusalem, Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Verse 15, you boast. We have entered a covenant, uh, into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead. We've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Isaiah, he calls these, these leaders of Israel scoffers. He says, you guys are just scoffing. You're, you're mocking the idea of turning to God for help. And, you know, as Isaiah speaks here, I think we're meant to notice that this kind of, it just smacks of sarcasm. Yeah, he, he kind of scoffs and he mocks the people, the leaders of, of uh, Jerusalem in return. He kind of, it's basically like he's saying, okay, you blokes, you guys who call yourself leaders in Jerusalem, yeah, let me get this straight. So you basically, you're claiming that you've made this deal with death, you've made a deal with the enemy, and you're proud of it? 
You think that's a good idea? Okay, that's well done. Really smart, guys. Yeah, these leaders of Jerusalem, of Judah, they seem like they're really proud of their own blindness, their own foolishness. Yeah, they're proud of the fact that as we kind of see, this section kind of shows us what, they, what they've chosen to do is to call on Egypt, their kind of neighbours to the south, their old enemy. They've called on Egypt for help with the Assyrians to the north to fight against them instead of turning to God for help. Which is a ridiculous idea. You know, Egypt are just as likely to destroy the people of Judah as Assyria are. And God keeps reaching out and calling his people to turn to him for help. But instead they keep turning anywhere but to God. I don't know if, uh, I think this uh, saying here is attributed to Albert Einstein. I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, this next uh, slide should show this saying. uh, Insanity, the definition of insanity, if you've ever uh, heard this one, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. This example here that Isaiah points out, it's much closer to home for the people of Jerusalem it's an example of a really foolish way to respond to the crisis that they're facing. They're making foolish decisions and then boasting in their own foolishness. They're doing the same thing that they've done in the past again and again, which surely this is the ultimate example of at least foolishness, maybe even insanity. And so what is a wise response? For the people of God, as they, they face this crisis. Well, I think it's, it's starting to become clear for us, I think. We're starting to see it clearly. In verse 16, which is kind of right at the centre of, of this chapter, Isaiah speaks God's word to his people and he, he communicates something really fundamental that they, the people of Judah, they need to get. The only wise response when you are faced with crisis is to turn to God and to find the rest and the refuge that they long for. Verse 16, read with me. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. God proclaims to the people of Jerusalem, he says, I have laid a stone, I've I've laid a a tested, a reliable stone, a a precious cornerstone. I've laid this stone as a foundation, a firm foundation, and I want you to turn to me, I want you to trust me, and I want you to build on the firm foundation that I have laid in Zion. And this word, Zion, you might be familiar with it, maybe you're not, but Zion, it's another word in the Old Testament that kind of just means the same thing as the name of Jerusalem, the kind of city where God dwells with his people. But kind of more specifically, it kind of means, it's talking about the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. And it's meant to represent this mountain, this place, as a stronghold. It's a place of refuge, a place of security and safety for God's people. Because God's ultimate aim for his people is not destruction. 
No, his aim is renewal and, and rebuilding for his people. And he's laid the first stone for the rebuilding process of his people. And so he invites them to turn to him, to come to him and build on him. To kind of rest in the security and the refuge that is found in God. And when they do that, it, it means that the panic, the, the fear, they're kind of frantically reacting to the situation in front of them and making silly uh, decisions, all of that will fade into the past. There is rest and refuge in Zion, in God himself and on his firm foundation. This is, a, as I said at the start, it's another long section of Isaiah, another big chunk of this book that we're kind of working through. And of course, you know, if we were to work all the way through this, we could be here for a year, as I said at the start. But you know, today, we're going to fly over the rest of this chapter so that we can get and have some lunch. But it's good for us just to see this pattern of what Isaiah has been doing, showing this wisdom and foolishness. Uh, as we fly over the rest of this chapter that we read, that Ray read for us, you know, we're going to see the reality is that Judah are going to continue to keep uh, refusing God's invitation. They'll keep refusing his invitation. And so, uh, as we've seen in the past, God, he's going to discipline his people. There's, there's discipline, there's destruction coming for the people of Judah before the rebuilding can take place. You know, when we read about God's judgment, I don't think it ever really feels any better when we hear about that. It never quite feels right to us, I think. It feels harsh, but the truth is that God's justice, it's always measured, it's always exact. And so he will judge Judah and their foolishness that we just saw. It'll be exposed for what it is. All right. We're probably all aware, for me, with the saying, you've made your bed, now you've got to lie in it. I spent a lot of time, maybe I still don't understand what it means, but I remember growing up thinking when I said that, someone said that to me, I would think, okay, go and have a lie down, sounds good to me. But uh, this saying, obviously, uh, I think it makes a bit more sense to me these days, uh, is basically what uh, Isaiah is saying in verse 20. He kind of says, actually, this judgment and stuff that's coming for you, you've made your bed, and now you're going to have to lie in it. You're going to have to lie in it, and what you're going to find is that it's too short. In verse 20, it's too short, and there's no refuge or rest. Because in his wisdom, God will not let their foolishness or their sinfulness keep going on. He's going to do his strange work of discipline with a heavy heart. And as the chapter kind of comes to a close, the last kind of section, Isaiah uses a parable, a parable of kind of agriculture to make a point about God's wisdom. He's trying to tie this all together and make a point about God's wonderful wisdom. Verse 24, he kind of talks away about, talks about the way a farmer ploughs and kind of sows crops uh, he highlights the way a farmer kind of uh, harvests and threshes and kind of grinds grain. And then he finishes the chapter in verse 29 with these words. He says, All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. 
You know, Isaiah wants the people of Judah through this whole chapter, he wants to, to show them just how uh, wonderful and magnificent and trustworthy God's wisdom is. He sort of says, you know, all of the wisdom that is kind of part of the, the fabric of creation, part of uh, kind of agriculture, how it all works, how creation works, he says this wisdom, this wisdom, it's all from God and it works, it, it makes sense and you trust in it. And so he says, trust in God's wisdom, especially in the moments of crisis and uncertainty. And for Judah, their crisis here was that the nations around them were about to kind of attack. Perhaps maybe they didn't realise it fully at the time, but they kind of faced the crisis of their own sin and their own rebellion against their God. Now, I wonder for us what our moments of crisis are. And where do we turn in these moments of crisis? This passage urges God's people to to respond wisely, not foolishly, when we're faced with moments of crisis in our lives. And the way to do that is to, to rest in God's wonderful wisdom to stand firm on his foundation, even as he kind of works in our lives in ways that seem strange, ways that we might struggle to understand. And the truth is that for all of humanity, our greatest crisis is that it's no different to what Israel faced. Our greatest crisis is that we face is that our sin and our rebellion against God against our creator. That's our our greatest crisis. But the good news is that God has laid a stone. He's laid a precious cornerstone, a foundation on which we can come and rest and find refuge in him. When we get to the New Testament, we see really clearly from a bunch of places, but one of them is, is Peter who kind of shows us that this precious cornerstone, the sure foundation on which the restored people of God are being built, it finds its ultimate and perfect fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. He is that cornerstone. For us now as the people of God, our lives and our hope and our future rest on the foundation of what Christ has done through his work on the cross. This seemingly foolish message of a Messiah, a king who would come and and die a, a horrible, cruel death on a cross. And that somehow through that God would, would bring relief and refuge and rest for those who come to him. This message is one that is ultimately God's wonderful wisdom at work. You know, the cross is God's ultimate strange work in the lives of his people. It's the foundation of the cross that we turn to in the, the crisis of our sin and our rebellion against God. But the message of the cross is, is much more than that. It's also something that brings rest and refuge 
to us in the many times of crisis we might face in our lives, whatever they might be. Now, maybe you're kind of struggling with serious health issues. There is rest and refuge in the cross of Christ. Maybe there is pain and hurt in your family. Maybe there is deep hurt in your relationship with your parents or your brother or sister for many different reasons. There is rest and refuge in the cross of Christ. Yeah, maybe you just find yourself facing more and more financial pressure. Maybe you just have no idea what the future holds. You're just not sure what to do. Any number of the things we might be facing, God wants his people to turn to him, to rest in his wisdom that he has demonstrated fully and completely through the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To look at the cross and see it and for us to know that God cares and that he is powerful to act in our lives. You know, of course we hear that and I think at times we hear those words and it's possible for us to kind of think, well, what good is the cross in my kind of situation, my everyday kind of situation? You know, how does the cross solve my financial issues? How does the cross deal with my chronic illness right here and now? And the, you know, the reality is that, of course, God is absolutely powerful and he, he may choose and he has chosen at times and he does choose at times to act in kind of miraculous and incredible ways to heal and bring uh, healing and restoration to his people in a bunch of different situations. And so he absolutely might do that. But at the very least, and this is no small thing, in his wisdom, through the Lord Jesus, God has given us each other. He has uh, placed us in a community of people where we can offer each other hope and support and where we can rejoice together in the, the truth and the knowledge that our future is secure in the Lord Jesus. Our ultimate crisis has been dealt with. And so it's important for us as we, as we move forward, both as individuals, as people who follow Jesus, but as a church, it's important for the, the things that we face together as a family, as a community, and for the things in our individual lives that we struggle with. It is really important that we commit and we work hard at loving each other well. At loving each other deeply and thoughtfully and practically. That we're here for each other. And that we keep reminding each other again and again of the wonderful wisdom of our God that he has revealed to us through his Son. Let's pray now that God would help us to do that by his Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, when we look at our lives and we look around at our world, well, there are many moments, both big and small, where we struggle 
We face moments of crisis where things where we're just not sure what is going on or what to do. Lord, we also look at our own hearts and we know that, Lord, we struggle to think and act and kind of point our lives in a direction that is, that is the way that you would want it to be, God. And so, Lord, we come this morning and we hear this truth of your wonderful wisdom and we give thanks and praise to you that you have acted in your wisdom to send the Lord Jesus to be the firm foundation that we can build our lives on and that we can continue to come back to and back to again and again to find rest and refuge for our lives. We thank you that you have given us each other so that in the moments where we find it hard to do that, that we can encourage each other and love each other and support each other. And Lord, we want to pray that you might help us and equip us by your spirit to actually do that. To love each other deeply and practically. To keep reminding each other of the hope that is ours through your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.